Welcome to Scrappy ABM, your source for groundbreaking approaches that don't break the bank. ABM shouldn't cost 200K in tech to even get started. So if you want to get started with ABM or make your program even better without investing a massive amount of money, you're in the right place. Each week, we'll hear from the brightest minds in the marketing world who are redefining ABM, achieving incredible results with untraditional methods, limited resources, and a whole lot of creativity. This isn't a show about how much money you can spend on fancy tech or overhyped tools. Instead, it's about celebrating creative problem solving and the scrappiness it takes to get ABM right. We'll dive into how these marketing leaders built robust ABM strategies with limited resources, revealing the actionable insights that led to their biggest wins. So if you're a marketer ready to challenge the status quo and build a scalable, efficient, effective marketing strategy, Scrappy ABM is the show for you. So if you're ready to discover ABM strategies that are lean, impactful, and utterly transformative, let's dive into this episode. Welcome back to the show, friends. We're coming at you strong today with episode number nine, an episode I am particularly excited about because it's a really good friend of mine. No doubt you're here because you saw the uh, the episode posted, so you know that we've got the one and only Mason Cosby with us here today. He is a marketer, a podcaster, champion of people, which is my favorite thing about him. He's a LinkedIn influencer. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He's a husband, a soon-to-be father, and just an all-around great person. Uh, you're all going to love this show and get to know Mason. Mason, my man, welcome to the show. I say this whenever somebody gives me a particularly kind intro, and you you have just given me a really, really kind intro, and my head is just so massively inflated. I'm not going to be able to leave my office. It's really becoming a problem because people keep introing me like that, and it's like it's got to come down eventually. So one, thank you for the I kind don't know. Words. I think that just means it's true. <laughs> you're... You're, I think you're about a month away or it's from the, when the show airs, maybe a couple weeks away from having a baby. So uh, you're about to get humbled and deflated real fast, dude. <laughs> that, is, that is true. There will be no sleep. <laughs> We're yeah, speaking when, from experience on that one. 100%. <laughs> once, once you start losing that sleep and you start getting the, uh, the poopy diapers and everything all over you and vomit on you, like you're just, that head deflates real fast. Yeah. Man, can't wait. <laughs> but it's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Anyway. Best thing you'll ever do. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we'll, we'll kick things off. We'll keep the train from derailing too much, although I'm sure it's going to happen quite a bit this show. But uh, we like to ask the initial question. What does Friends with Benefits mean to you in the context of tech partnerships? So I'm going to really, to your point, take this from kind of a more of a marketing lens. And I, I may have actually stolen this phrase from you a couple years back, but just being able to sell better together and being able to go like, further, faster together. So especially right now in the yes. context of sales assembly, I'm a solo marketer that has a ton of partners that we get to work with. So really I get the opportunity to look at the skill sets of the marketing teams of our partners and essentially for like specific initiatives and specific projects say, we're not really two teams, we're one team. So like what are the skill sets that I bring? What's the technology and the tools that I bring? What do you bring? And then how do we come together essentially as one team for the specific initiative to get this thing launched and help everybody grow together. So as I think about Friends with Benefits, I'm thinking through the lens of, again, how do we actually go further, faster together because we can come together as marketers with the best of all of our different skill sets. I love that. Man. I love the, the, the two, we're not two teams or one team. I, I, mm -hmm. I really like that concept. And I'll give a little bit of uh, history here that Mason and I have been partners uh, at previous companies before and I've, I've witnessed you know that that mentality firsthand and 
when I was at Terminus, you were back at Mojo with our friends Nicole's. Um, you guys quickly became my, my number one partner, and you really embodied that. We were one team. We're going to do this together. Everything that we do is going to revolve around each other, and I think that's, you know, that's real. Well, I was yeah, just going to comment there really quick. I've heard this a few times from you, and for those of you listening, this is Mason and I's first conversation, so... This is, I've heard all this through the grapevine or through your LinkedIn post, but I really, really appreciate your sentiment that you come to the table and understand your strengths, but then look to fill the peripheral with other people's strengths. And that's how you really build a great partnership. And you say that over and over and over, and it's clear that you really actually do that, which is unique. So good on you. I, I appreciate all the kind words, uh, but again, really practically, everybody benefits. Like I'm a, I'm a one-person marketer, and Jason, back to your point, when we were working together in, in a partnership capacity, I was a one-person marketer. So again, there is that element where I can only do so much, there's only so much time in the day, but if we can come together and recognize we have our own audiences, and even if it's just not even different skill sets, if it's audiences, we have different audiences, we can amplify all of our messages together. So again, it's... I've been blessed to have unintentionally landed in the partnership space just with the organizations that I've worked in and seen the power of just that kind of collaboration across organizations. Yeah, no, no doubt. We need more marketers like you who truly, who truly get it and want to you know, build these partnerships and relationships outside of the work that, that they're doing for their company. It almost seems like with you, like most of your marketing is built with partners built with others outside of your own organization so it's it's doesn't really even sometimes i'm like where does mason work again because he's always doing all this other stuff with other people and it always comes back to benefit sales assembly and the team there so i appreciate that about you so for those of you who haven't had a conversation with you like myself what is mason cosby's elevator pitch so do you want the i'll give you the long story short um, the elevator pitch is that I, when I started my career, thought I was going to be a pastor, fell into uh, this B2B tech world and recognized, man, I really love it here. And the reason I want to be a pastor is I really wanted to help people. So the reality of the B2B tech space is I get to still live that out. It's very different, obviously, than pastoral ministry, but I get to help a lot of people and that's helping them advance their careers. That's helping them build a better life for their family. It's helping them specifically in the context of sales assembly where we're an education company. So I get to help people literally do their jobs better so they can provide better for their family so they can grow their companies. And as a result, everybody is better for it. So the elevator pitch is my goal as a, as a career professional is to really serve the B2B tech community to the best of my ability and just genuinely helping them in, advance themselves as individuals, which then in turn helps them advance their companies. So that's kind of the elevator pitch of Mason Cosby. That's a beautiful I, thing. Yeah, I love that. And I could sit here and spin on this for the next two hours. And I think we may have even hinted on this uh, in your podcast when I joined you many moons ago, um, kind of around my my career, my trajectory, and kind of on the same path as you. And I stumbled into the B2B space and landed in this partnerships world, which very similar to it's kind of how your logic is, is, is mine as well. It's like I get the sit in the middle of all these different teams, all these different companies, and really 
understand and learn from them and help them drive the progression of their success and that's really fulfilling in a in a b2b SaaS role which sounds very strange and weird to say but you get a lot of fulfillment when you get to help different teams and people so let's let's talk a little bit about more about you and how you're you're able to to do that right you it's it's no um no stranger to, to linkedin you are right <laughs> you you post on a daily basis and you embody this learning out loud thing that a lot of people are talking about and, and no one does it better than you i want to talk to you a little about a little bit about your your voice on linkedin and how you maintain authenticity by posting every single day right and kind of how you're able to to leverage linkedin by doing so 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 talk to us about how you Hey, how you kind of get started on, on down this LinkedIn path and how it's kind of helped progress your career, but how you've yeah. done it in an authentic manner. So there's a couple couple things that go into this. One, if we go all the way back to when I even started posting on LinkedIn, uh, again, I landed in this B2B tech space and was recognizing, okay, I don't have, I've always been a really solo marketer or really scrappy marketer. So I recognize I don't have massive budgets. So what's the best way to actually reach B2B buyers? It's probably going to be through building relationships on social where BB buyers typically hang out. It's going to be LinkedIn. So like that was the initial thing. I actually started on LinkedIn when I was working at a loan management software company in Jackson, Mississippi. So I was trying to connect with lenders and like that didn't, that didn't work because uh, I'm not a lender. So to <laughs> your point, I think I'm so kind of bullish on authenticity because when I started on LinkedIn, I wasn't authentic. I tried and tried and tried to be this like financial lending marketing expert that had been on the job for three weeks. So clearly I knew exactly what I was talking about. And I just saw that completely fall flat. I mean, just zero results, hours upon hours upon hours, for like a year and a half with nothing to show for it. And then I transitioned over into the agency space. Um, and again, we, we've alluded to it, but I worked at a company called Mojo Media Labs and I was the marketer that marketed the agency. So it's marketing, marketing, marketers, which is still to this day one of the most fun jobs that I've ever had. And what I recognized in that is the more I got to know the marketing space, the more I started to understand, yes, there are clear playbooks and strategies and tactics that people can run, but more often than not, it's a bunch of people that have no idea what they're doing and are just like doing their best to figure out what's gonna work right now. So instead of coming at it from this perspective of, let me be this incredible expert that's got it all together, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing but here's what I'm trying and it seems to be working. And then I'd report back and be like, it did. Or I'd be like, it didn't. And then again, I just doing that for like, I think it's been three years now, people have tuned in. So I, I try to be this authentic individual because again, I've tried it the other way. It doesn't work. Uh, and the other thing is when you continue to post things that aren't authentic, you constantly fear that you're going to get found out. I don't fear about being found out right now because I've been, sometimes to my own detriment, very authentic. Um, and like shown, man, this was a complete failure, but like this is what I learned from it. So again, just working through those things. Uh, and then the final piece I wanna be very clear on is it does ebb and flow. Um, I, I learned this from Dan Sanchez, cause I, I've been posting a lot more about my personal life. I think I've actually over-indexed on that. Uh, Dan Sanchez has said like, if you think about your content as a meal, the personal life stuff should be more of a seasoning 
and like the main meat and potatoes is your expertise in your actual professional life. So I probably over indexed. I want to be clear, like I don't have it fully figured out. It ebbs and flows because um, I've actually recently seen some decrease in engagement. There's a variety of reasons behind that, but like I think it's because I've probably indexed so much on like I'm having a baby and like that's nice, but people typically follow me for like career and ABM advice, not to right. see my life evolve as I have a child. Yeah, so I totally understand that. I mean, I think that's amazing and I appreciate your authenticity there and just in your answer, truly. Um, I want to hear your advice for people who maybe are wanting to take that step and two twofold. Maybe they don't know what their expertise is, so how do they get started? Um, and you kind of alluded to that, but did you feel like you were an expert or you were at least had enough skin in the game to have a voice when you started? Um, and for somebody who is starting, what advice do you have for them to remain authentic? Uh, twofold. So the first, the first answer is no. And I would actually still say to this day, I don't feel like I'm truly all that much of an expert. Like I've only really been in B2B period for like five years at this point. So, I mean, I, like I, I would not claim to be a true expert. Um, I've put in a lot of hours. I've worked a lot of 80 hour weeks to get to this point. So like I've accelerated that on that front, but the reality is like there are people that are 15, 20 years into this thing that are way smarter than I am. So I don't claim that authenticity. I don't claim the expertise in that sense uh, where I claim is, Hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what's working. This is what isn't. So it's very tailored to what I'm doing. And again, if we think back and I've been really thinking through this, I don't know if you guys know Alex Hermosi, but like the best piece of advice that I've gotten from Alex Hermosi He's like a very large up and coming like business guru type person is like when you're creating content, stop saying you should do X and like focus on this is what I did and these were the results because yeah. I think and I, I actually had this as a, as a LinkedIn post. There have been times in my overall journey on LinkedIn in the past three years where I have for like we're like I've gotten high on my own supply and I look at my content I'm like man, like I'm I'm starting to get pretty smart here and that's when my content typically tanks. <laughs> Because I no longer come at it from the perspective of an authentic person that's learning actively. And I start mm -hmm. dictating what other people should do versus saying, here's what I'm actively doing. This is what's working. This is what's not. So again, then the lesson for other people to take is do what I just recommended. Like, don't say, this is what you should do. Say like, this is what I'm doing. Because again, from my own perspective, my own experience, the more I've leaned into what I'm doing and saying, this is what's worked for me the more people tend to engage because we don't like to be dictated to. We just like to follow others that are being successful and kind of leading a charge. And it so opens up an open conversation. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like, this is what I'm doing. What do you think? Not this is what you should do. Good luck. And, and yeah. there, there's a lot of like um, psychology and how do you, how you accelerate learning within that, right? There's, I think a lot of science, I've read a lot about this, about how we can accelerate our learning by actually talking about the things we're learning and having those open conversations like once you get to the place where you feel like you have enough experience a little bit of an opinion then you start talking about it injecting it into conversation and then your your learning just hits this acceleration path that it wouldn't otherwise hit so there's a lot of value in just like what you've actually been doing over the last three years so while others may have been in the space for 15 your five years probably matches their 15 years of experience because you're having those conversations with those people. 
and probably challenging their methodology. Yeah, I, I'd agree with all of that. And again, I think through the years of experience piece with the understanding that we quantify years of experience with the understanding that it's kind of typically a 40 hour work week and you're not typically doing so much in communities and like learning from other people. Like, or right. so from that perspective, when we think years of experience, that's the, the frame. But for me personally, and I've shared this fairly frequently in, in public, but like I have either been doing, like I have 64 certifications on my LinkedIn because when I started in this career field, I had no idea what I was doing. So I just went and got as many free certifications as I could. And then from there, I started my own podcast and I started speaking to VPs and CMOs across a variety of disciplines in the marketing space. And then from there, since I've left the agency space, I started to do some minor consulting and some freelance work again. So again, all of those things compound to where I, right now I'm probably working close to 60 hours a week. I love it. But that compounding effect of not just 40 hours for sales assembly, but 40 hours for sales assembly, 10 at this other organization where they're doing things completely differently. I'm like a small part of their overall structure. And then one where I'm literally just like their fractional consultant that is poking holes in their entire strategy. So like all of that comes together to where you get this compounding effect of learning and accelerated growth. Incredible. Love that. No, there's, a, there's a lot of people to learn within that. It's like, especially as they, you know, think about taking on the beast that is LinkedIn, um, you know, A, put the damn work in. You got you to do the work. You got to be willing to invest the time and, you know, may not require 64 certifications, but, you know, at least, you know, put the time in to get the knowledge that you need, you know, whether it's, you know, starting your own podcast, starting to talk about what you're learning. Um, one of the things that I kind of wanted to kind of, rewind on a bit is kind of that authenticity um we'll, we'll kind of wrap this topic up here but how long did it take you to kind of overcome that that fear of, of being vulnerable on linkedin and sharing and feeling like you know you're going to be discovered or, or seen for not knowing what you're talking about yeah i'm asking for a friend on that one <laughs> um, <laughs> i'm not taking notes i uh <laughs> i don't think you're gonna love the answer it it comes in waves um, so I think, for example, we'll, we'll use the example of gravity. You know, when I, when I, with Mojo, before we were acquired, we put together this massive day-long virtual conference called ABMathon. And I thought that's probably when I was at, like the height of my confidence and authenticity because I had been able to pull together 20 sessions for a day-long virtual conference all around ABM. I, I proved all the content. Like I was in the throes of working with some of the top experts on account-based marketing. So I felt really confident at that moment. Uh, when we got acquired and my role changed pretty dramatically, it's about a two month period where I really, for lack of a word, kind of sucked at my job because we were in the throes of an acquisition. Didn't feel super confident at that point. Eventually I got better at my job, felt really confident again. And I'll be blunt, like my, again, my engagement right now today is, is pretty down and I'm still figuring out within the overarching brand narrative sales assembly, like where does my specific voice tie-in to sales assembly, but also still being unique and authentic. So like, if you were to ask me, I feel a lot more confident than I did like two months ago in my own voice and authenticity on that front. But like, it's something that I'm still figuring out. And I think you have to figure out the one thing that I don't hear a lot of people talk about when it comes to personal brand is it's, it's personal and we as people should change over time. So it's that balance of your audience gets to know you for something. But then you also evolve as a person. So how do you strike the balance of evolving your brand personally while also still serving that audience? And again, I think that's why it ebbs and flows with kind of how I feel confident or feel uh, fully authentic in what I'm posting. So 
Um, that's why I continue to put in the reps every day, regardless of how authentic or inauthentic I'm feeling or confident I'm feeling, because I know the more I put out there, the more feedback I get, and then I can continue to refine and figure out where my voice perfectly fits in that moment. That's awesome. Love that. And, and I think your brand is one of, you know, being a being a helper and being a servant, you know, on LinkedIn to people. And I think that's very evident in, in your podcast, uh, The Marketing Ladder, which I would, would love for you to tell us a little bit about that um, real quickly and then how you've been able to use The Marketing Ladder to really, you know, help your community through your personal brand on LinkedIn. Yeah, so there's a couple pieces to The Marketing Ladder. Um, one... The, the show has actually helped about 30 people land jobs, which has been just awesome to see. That's um, outstanding. So I'm like, of, of everything that I've done with the marketing ladder over the past about two years, like that's the thing that I'm the most proud of. Um, so as we look at how I've been able to use the marketing ladder, it's like kind of threefold. So one, yes, I would say that my personal brand kind of blew up to some extent after the marketing ladder was started because I started to have these really influential people um, that would just come and talk to me about their careers. And some guests were very vulnerable, very authentic, and telling their career story really for the first time in the only place that they had. Um, so I just think about some of the leaders that like were really vulnerable and authentic. And I got like really essentially like exclusive content because it wasn't about like your strategies, which most people go to talk about. It was like, what's your story? Like, how did you get to where you are today? Um, so that's, that's one piece. The second piece is that career side of helping people land jobs. So every single month, I would compile a list of everybody that had been on the show that was actively hiring. And I would post that and tag everybody. And that those posts always typically got a lot of engagement because it was super practical and it helped both parties. So if you'd been on the show, you got highlighted to somebody that was hiring. If you're looking for a job, you got to find a single place where you could actually reach out directly to the hiring manager. And that's what the show ended up becoming is this idea of get, uh, get career advice from your potential future boss. So you could go listen to the episode and then personalize your outreach to a hiring manager based on what they had said in the episode. So that all came together really well. And then from a business perspective, um, I did work in an ABM agency and I was very intentional with the way that I had built my LinkedIn network to actually include a lot of our target accounts. So I would end up actually having a target account on the show. I'd help them hire somebody. So then the hiring manager that was the decision maker for buying an ABM program really liked me personally because I helped them find talent. And then that talent liked me because I helped them find a job. So then I had two internal evangelists for Mason Cosby that wanted to see me succeed. And then when they needed support around their marketing programs, they're like, we really need an agency. They either knew that I worked at an agency or they would just reach out to me and say like, hey, Mason, you're well connected. Who do you know? And I'd say, well, I know me. Do you want to come talk to me about building your ABM program? And like we actually were able to source about a million dollars out of the podcast and closed about four or five different companies that had been on the show as an unintended byproduct. So as I think about like the ways that the marketing ladder has benefited the community and then me personally, like it's those three big things of helping people land jobs. I think it gave me the confidence to have a voice in a lot of ways, but then also like it did clearly tie back to revenue for the organization that I worked at. Yeah, okay. that, 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 yeah there's, a, there's a lot to unpack here. This thing yes. this truly, you know, embodies like what we're here to talk about you know as far as like purpose-built relationships within partnerships so like what you were doing was like kind of the, the partnership motion and for me step one in any partnership that i build is like how do we provide value out the gate first and foremost and you were providing you know incremental value to these target accounts that you were going after without the intended expectation of them doing business with you 
more of a hopeful byproduct, but it worked and you the value kind of paid back, you know, a thousand fold, if I may. I also think that that's something either people, individuals or companies struggle with when they see people creating personal brands because it seems it seems peripheral. It seems fluffy. Um, and until you can bring the circle together and show like my personal brand is adding value to the company and you've done that and like here's how, here's the revenue I'm driving because of it. Um, I, I don't think people often connect those dots and think all the way through that, but the power of what you just described is unmatched, truly. Like a company alone, people don't connect with companies or brands, they connect with people. And you've, you've shown that, um, and you've provided value through and through to these people. And again, we're here to talk about relationships. That is the basis of this podcast. So building those one-to-one -one relationships and helping people first, as you mentioned, they come back to you time and time again in ways that are potentially unexpected. That's amazing. Um, so you've kind of talked about this, but how do you make sure that your network and your relationships remain mutually beneficial and it's not transactional in nature? So the, I, I think I'm at it like an unintentional advantage here because I just genuinely like helping people and I don't typically do it with any expectation of anything in return. And then it's like a really pleasant surprise when it happens. And like, I just kind of, at this point, having done it for a couple of years, um, for lack of a word, and this, I know that people are going to hate this answer, but like, it's not super strategic in nature. It's just like, look, I recognize the more I give value to other people and actually genuinely benefit them and help them, the more that they're going to like me. And when they inevitably need my help, they will come to me. I don't know if it's going to happen next month or next year or even like three years from now. But the reality is it's going to happen. And like, let's think about this podcast. Jason and I met, I think like three years ago. And like, we are still connected. We're still friends. And like, who knows what this relationship will turn into. And I have no expectation that it would turn into anything, but it might, and that's cool. And like, that's it. So from that perspective, like, I don't have necessarily like a 17 step sequence of like how I build a friendship first and then like <laughs> have all the appropriate touch points and attribution to then say, at this point, I'll make the ask. I just help people. And then when it makes sense, I ask. Well, it's like in Robert Caldini's book, Influence, he talks about the law of reciprocity. Yes. Right. And, and people remember what you do for them. And, you know, whether like to your point, it's three months, three years, eight years down the road, like they remember and it'll always come back. You know, and that's the power of providing value is that, you know, maybe it comes back, maybe it doesn't. But, you know, the, the law of influence says it will. But just do do the right thing because it's the right thing and help people. Yeah. So I have a question on this. Um, and I'm coming out of left field a little bit here. So apologies. <laughs> um, obviously, Jason and I both work in partnerships. A lot of the people we talk to are from that um, discipline. And this is not a new concept. Add value first. But a lot of times people don't know where to start in adding value. Um, I think we've kind of alluded to this. You have carved out a niche for you in helping people find jobs, helping people grow in their careers. 
um, and that has come around to add value to you personally and to your company. In the partnership world, value sometimes takes the lens of referrals or leads, and those aren't always like ready on a silver yeah. platter. Um, so for, do you have any advice on where to look to add value? Because sometimes people don't even know what to ask for, but clearly you've stepped up and you just add value wherever you see it needed. How do, how do you find that for people and how can you offer advice for somebody who's like, I want to show up and help, yeah, but people aren't asking for it? Well, one, um, I'm going to be really like brazen on this. Uh, three years ago, nobody asked me for help ever. I mean, I, I had been in an agency for like three months in the B2B tech space for three months. Like, why would anybody ask me for help? At that time, I didn't have anything of value to offer. And I don't say that from the perspective of like, I'm not valuable. Like, I understand that as a human, I have intrinsic value. But for the market at large, I didn't get asked on a podcast. Nobody asked me for help. because nobody, nobody knew I existed or had anything of value. So first, like, go create something that's valuable that people would be interested in asking your help for. And like, that could be a podcast. Like, that's not super complicated on that front. Like, go build something of value. So that's the first thing. Second thing, once you have it, there's three approaches that I would recommend. Uh, the first is solve a peripheral problem for your ideal customers. So again, if we think back to when I was in the agency, the problem that they had was they needed to build marketing programs that were successful. And the ways in which they could do that were, there, there were a lot of ways. One of them would be hiring an agency. One of them would be hiring uh, another person, another one would be buying technology. Like those are kind of the three big things. Um, we had tech partnerships. So if they needed support around technology, we could route them that way. Uh, we offered agency services. So we were that one. The third way though was helping them get talent. So again, we solved a peripheral problem for our best fit customers and then actually helped them land talent. So that was a clear value add regardless. And that worked with partnerships, that worked with our potential customers, that worked with our existing customers. So like that will always work. And it's the same thing over here at Sales Assembly. Like we're a skill development company. So a lot of what we actually do just to help people out is we help connect people so that they can land a job. It's not an official product offer for an example, but adds a lot of value. So that's the first thing. Second thing, if you're trying to figure out how I specifically add value, um, you know, pick the people you want to add value for. There's only so much time in the day. So take an account-based approach to actually adding value and then just be like really intentional. So one of the things that we're talking about here at Sales Assembly is you know, we've got two sellers and me as kind of our revenue team for memberships. So we're just going to pick like 400 people and say for the next six months, we are these 400 people's biggest fans. And like, we're just going to be everywhere for them. And we are going to make sure that they have so much value from us. We're going to help them in any way, shape, and form that we can. So that Jason, to your point, around the wall of reciprocity, the more that we help them, like the conversion rate on that is probably going to be like, what, 20% will actually say, let's go you know, have a conversation with sales assembly. When you had like a hundred deals this year, we've already got like 40. So from that perspective, if we chose 400 people and became their biggest fan for six months, it's likely that we would see the rest of the deals come in through a variety of methods, but like that's one of them. So just get like really intentional and focused around who you're gonna add value to, as opposed to this vague idea of like, I'm gonna add value, like get specific. Uh, and then the third one is, and it, again, it, it's a bit circuitous. Um, I think about the customer as like a job person to, to help land or helping them uh, find people to land jobs. I also look at our customers that have either seen layoffs that have seen, um, you know, they just 
they get let go, like whatever that looks like. If you have an existing customer that loves you already, helping them land a job, regardless of where they land, is a great way to then have them bring you in. So again, there's three ways. Two of them are jobs, because again, the past two years I've been doing a lot of job placement, but like looking at your ideal customers and figuring out how you can help them find talent, looking at who do I want to provide so much value to that I just become their number one fan for like six months to a year. And then lastly, if you have people that are your existing customers that love you, if they get let go for any reason, helping them land a job so they'll bring you to the next organization. And again, there's no expectation of like, hey, I'll help you land a job if you bring me in. But like, it's going to naturally happen. Like if I help you land a job, you're going to love me even more. So when you see the problem that we solve, you're going to be like, I've already got a solution. Let's go get on a call with sales assembly. Love that. It's incredible. And it's, it's all revolving around this, this thing of value yet again. So like I've got this concept that value builds trust, trust creates relationships and relationships will eventually create ROI in the B2B context, right? And never seek out that ROI, but it will happen again, like the law of reciprocity. So like you're seeing this firsthand at, at sales assembly and I love that. And I also kind of want to jump back into to point number two, where you said to, to be their biggest fan. So like taking 400 people, so to say, and being their biggest fan, like, how, how do you, or Sales Assembly, you and Matt, Jenna, whoever it might be, like, how are you guys showing up for these people to, to be their biggest fan? Yeah, so we're gonna get really tactical for a moment. When I think about the split of what I am proposing, um, Jenna and I, so Jenna is our person that's over sponsorship, partnership type approaches. We're gonna pick 100 people because typically what's happening is, and this has been really interesting since I've started, I've essentially functioned kind of as a solutions engineer for our partnerships. So whenever the partnerships get to a potential stage in the deal cycle, Jenna will rope me back in and we'll essentially like co-create a marketing plan together so that before they sign the contract, they actually have a clear understanding of, hey, if we were to go to market together, this is what this partnership could look like. From there, to help on the front end, I'm going to start getting way more intentional around who I'm engaging with so that when we actually start to engage in some level of conversation, there's an existing relationship there as opposed to like, let's just see who could sponsor and partner. Like we're picking out a list of like 50 sales tech type companies that I'm going to go and build relationships with, with the inevitable goal that they might be great partners. If not, they may be great. Like it's just going to be good to have those relationships regardless of what the outcome looks like. So again, I'm going to go become the number one fan for like probably a hundred people, probably some VPs of marketing and some CMOs across about 50 different organizations. So that's the first one. The way that that would then break down is when I do my daily LinkedIn content, like I'm going to have a folder of the people that I'm going to follow and I'm going to break that out on a daily basis. So I'm going to go and engage with 20 people. So over the course of a week, I'll hit all hundred. So again, I just hit every single person every single week. And again, no sales pitch, just like commenting, liking, showing up, inviting them onto a podcast, like whatever that needs to look like. From there, we're gonna do the exact same thing with sales from a membership perspective and focus on CROs and VPs of sales. We're gonna break that out across like 300. And then we've got two sellers on that front. They're gonna be really focused on becoming the biggest fan for those CROs and those VPs of sales and then supporting and helping wherever they can in whatever they're talking about. So that could be helping them land somebody that's gonna um, work at that organization, or it could be, hey, you're struggling with X, Y, and Z topic. We've actually got resources and content on this. So again, just showing up constantly with the inevitable intent that 
the more that if, if somebody showed up on your content is super helpful and valuable for three to six months, you're probably going to eventually just go check out their profile and say like, who is this person? And again, exactly. you'll see, and we've set up our landing or our profile pages as landing pages to where it routes them towards like, take a tour, see our product. Here's how it can be valuable for you. And everything's ungated from that perspective. So, I mean, it's truly a value first approach. That's incredible, and the, and there's so much to take from here for like the the partnership initiative and partnership programs as well, in um, the fact that <clears throat> a one of the most valuable things you can do is, is find that right partner that you can go to market with and and be be able to build that relationship, right? And anytime I'm working with partners and I'm identifying those top tier partners I'm going to go to market with. It's really identifying the value they're in, the better together story again, how we go further faster, those things, and really understanding that the nature of the relationship. But but also like something you said as well is um, engaging with, with those accounts, mm-hmm. right? So if, if I'm working with all these partners, again, if we're partnering together, like really helping support them in the market. Right, maybe uh, you know S- STM, if I may support the market, <laughs> support Ooh, to market, whatever it might be. Let's, let's coin a new new phrase here: support to market. Done. How do we support our, our partners out there in the market and, and going and being a part of their network, their community, and elevating their voice and providing value there, especially for someone like yourself who, you know, is is quite prolific in the LinkedIn space and can provide a lot of eyeballs onto a brand that may not get it otherwise. So there's a lot of a lot of um, value in support to market. I'm trademarking that right now, by the way. Love it. And it's Get also, that domain. <laughs> yeah. I wrote down another thing too that I just kind of wanted to quickly highlight. No, no point other than to talk about it. But you said it's good to have the relationship. Throughout my career uh, in partnerships, I've always taken the calls. I've always taken the interviews. I've always, if, whether or not I'm I'm open to taking on new partners or not. I've always found value in, in meeting mm-hmm. new people and having the relationship and, and continuing to, to STM them in the market, support to, to, to market. I'm going to do Just it. part of the vocab um, now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love that. It is, it is great to have the relationship, especially for those of us in, in a sales or a marketing or a partnership role. You never know, again, like when that's going to come back and when that relationship, when that call you took – that never was intended to end up with anything other than to, to meet and learn from them. Like it'll come back one of those days. So I want to, I want to go back to kind of what you were just talking about. There's so much to, to, I'm literally going to make my sales team listen to this episode because there's so much in here, but um, most of this Mason is for us. Like just not, we, don't know, we, we do this yeah. podcast for ourselves. No doubt. Like, if anybody listens bonus, but, <laughs> so you just posted and I'm going to quote you here yeah. getting your potential customers actively involved in your content program is probably the best way to build a relationship and have them root for you long term so we just kind of talked about that here but one thing I want to kind of dive into a little bit more is the way I read this is this is like your corporate content program mm-hmm. which can sometimes feel a little stuffy, can sometimes feel inauthentic if the voice isn't correct. But what you just talked about is person-to-person relationships. Um, So how do you bridge the gap there from like you have a company strategy, company campaigns, content program, and then 
the individuals are the ones that are actually moving the dirt, that are building those relationships. Can you kind of talk about how you bridge the gap? I'm going to be really honest of I'm, I can talk to it, but admittedly, like I've worked in primarily smaller organizations where we had a very people first go to market kind of as a, as a standard approach. So even in our corporate content, it was always about the people that were sharing that expertise. So it was never, I mean, it was always, we'll, we'll go back to Mojo as an example. Like we created Mojo blog content, but it was always like, here's the person that worked at Mojo that had these thoughts that then created this content. So even from that perspective, mm-hmm. like it wasn't a, I think even at one point I just stopped posting on the Mojo company page for like a year. Cause it just like, we saw so much better success from a personal perspective that like the corporate content wasn't needed. It was a waste of time for us. Um, so I, like, I think the balance there is yes. Like if you have that corporate content engine going cool, but like at the end of the day, if you build a podcast, you're probably gonna have a host. Like somebody's got a host at. So then can you turn that person into kind of the main person that people build a relationship with and see and see value from? Um, so again, even with the Sales Assembly podcast, like we have a rotating set of people that are involved and kind of host that show. And we post about it from our company page, but the outreach is always from an individual. The connections and the relationships are always built from an individual. So like I hear what you're saying. I just don't. I think if you just have it focused around like an individual that's going to be focused on building those relationships, you should work out even if it comes from a company and a corporate page. Because um, at the end of the day, like a clip of somebody is still a person. So I, I, does that answer the question? Totally. And I love that approach too, because what I heard you say, and I this is I'm leading into what I want to ask you next, but you have... You elevate different people in your company to be experts on certain things um, is kind of what I'm hearing you say. And then that whole thing creates the company. Companies are just an illusion. They're made up of people. And so if we go to market as people, we're going to be more successful. And again, we're here talking about people to people relationships. So that makes sense. Um, I've also heard you talk about the quote unquote T-shaped marketer. So let me stop there. Can you explain what that is for people who've never heard that before? Yeah, so the idea of the T-shaped marketer is this concept that um, there's a lot of disciplines across marketing. So you've got paid and you've got organic and you've got PR, like there's just a ton of stuff that you can do in marketing. So the idea is you get a breadth of understanding across the discipline that is marketing, which realistically has like 15 sub-disciplines within it and you figure out where you're going to be best suited. And like, there's a bunch of jokes about it, but like there's the creative marketer, but there's also then like the marketing ops person. And like, those are both marketing, but those are totally different people. <laughs> so you then both need to need figure, it. yes, both super needed, but you need, to, you need to figure out where you're gonna land. And then you go super deep in that one specific area. But the value of having the breadth of understanding is twofold. One. If you get the breadth of understanding, you then understand all of your potential options before you dedicate a couple to a few years of like owning a specific lane. Like if you're going to do this right, you've got to stick to a lane for a really long time to actually get deep expertise. The second thing is within a marketing team, you should have a lot of collaboration. So you need to understand the high level concepts around the differences in how do we do potentially a content pillar program 
versus more of a volume blog content program. So again, both of those are SEO strategies, but the ways in which you execute those are radically different and will have different outcomes depending on the ways in which you do it. Content pillar, big bets, qu uh, quantity content that's kind of like surface level, you get a lot more at-bats. So again, different approaches, different strategies, and it just depends on the, sorry, I'm getting really nerdy for a moment, but like it depends on where your go. industry is from an SEO um, kind of maturity stage. So I would never claim to be a deep SEO expert, but like I've used SEM Rush and I created a ton of blog content and like reached first page of Google on a number of occasions because I was in like a not super mature SEO industry. So a quantity content strategy would work better there because I'm getting a wider range versus when I was in the agency space, I tried the quantity approach, didn't work because SEO was super saturated for agencies. So I went uh, quality and created content pillar pages and released like 10,000 word ungated content to then rank really high for specific. So like, again, recognizing that like vast discipline of marketing, I can then have a conversation to understand the strategy and then understand within my deep expertise what I can do to support the overarching marketing strategy. And the other thing is if you're working with agencies, if you have an understanding across the breadth of the discipline, you can smell BS from a mile away from people that don't know what they're talking about, but just use a bunch of jargon to make it sound like they know what they're talking about. Man, dang it, every, every answer, I'm like, I have 45 <laughs> questions to follow up with you. Um, I love the concept of this T-shaped insert job description here because I think it absolutely applies to partner people too. I mean, we've talked about this a lot. It's not a new concept that partner people should be quote unquote mini CEOs. And that's because we have to be dangerous enough in all buying units, all orgs within the company to be able to help, to be able to insert ourselves, whatever it is, CS, product, sales, marketing, you have to be able to speak the language, but it's unrealistic, as you're saying, to be an expert in all of those. Um, so in your experience, Mason, how have you found success in building teams or finding partners to fill areas that you're not deep on? So I would, I'm going to get more of the partnership route because to this, to this day, the largest team that I've formerly been on is like three people. So like I've never never like built a massive team personally. Um, but from a partnership perspective, like being really honest. So I always come in and say like, I'm not a graphic designer. I'm not a paid media expert. I'm really good at content. I'm like half decent at, at operations. Uh, if you need some like really basic operations and I'm really, I have a really good strategy brain around account-based marketing. That's my skill set. What do you guys got? And like, recognizing, okay, how do we then marry these two things together? And from there, once you've married those two things together, it's pretty clear where the gaps are. And you can then have a conversation around how do we fill these gaps? So like, I'll give you a quick example of sales assembly. I suck at design. Like it's the, it's the greatest gap for me personally. They have premium Canva. It was still terrible. Like I just can't do it. I do not have that eye. So we got a tool called Design Pickle. It's a funny name, uh, mm -hmm. but they have unlimited graphic design for like a thousand bucks a month. So we can then queue everything up and now I have a design resource. Well, and I wanna be clear, there's no calls, there's no like really deep communication. Is it gonna be the most incredible design in the world? No, but it's a great value for us. 
because we need pretty basic design needs. I just suck at it. Like it's just not my skill set. So then let's go partner side. Uh, Sales Assembly is a skill development company that doesn't have a ton of like really, really deep um, data that's captured through a piece of technology. So we're looking at starting to do more report-based and data-driven content moving forward. So as I go to our partners, I can say, hey, I wanna help, I wanna see the current data set that you guys have around this topic. I'll take that data, I'll then use that data to then survey our audience of about 7,000 sellers to see how they are then using that data to then better their sales game and up their skills. So again, we can take the data that our partners have as a practical example, and then actually use that in surveys to then create content with our audience. So again, if we think about partnership, sales assembly, super active, super engaged audience of like seven, 8,000 people. Partners, especially in the tech space, tons of access to actionable data. But now how do you marry those two things together to one, share that data with the audience, but then also get the audience insights and reactions to the data. So again, that's how a partnership can work really, really well. Again, recognizing the different skill sets and different capabilities of all the organizations to come together to then create a better team. Yeah, and it's, I think it's more about going back to what you said, is like knowing the gaps. You have to have <laughs> that, that breadth of knowledge to even identify a gap. Like if we sat in partnerships and didn't really understand like what product was doing or what mm -hmm. uh, marketing was doing, we wouldn't know where, where a gap was to be filled. Like in my last role, I, I saw a gap in how partners were involved in marketing. I was able to go to the marketing team and kind of build that story, paint that story for them and made a, a massive difference in what we were driving from a revenue perspective, right? Same thing with product. You have to have at least enough understanding of what they're doing, how product works, what they're building to be able to identify a gap. And that's yeah. one of the things I talk to, to young partner leaders about all the time is like buddy up with, with every department you can and this is a great follow-up to last week's conversation with mike stalker he talks about having the four lenses you know you, yeah. you know partnerships views everything through four lenses sales marketing cs and product and you got to be able to to see through those lenses yeah. i also what i just heard you say and i think it just deserves highlighting again is being humble enough to know your strengths and <laughs> admit your weaknesses both personally and as a company. And I think a lot of people go to market and say, we can do it all, we'll serve you. And that doesn't work. If you're trying that, stop it. <laughs> um, and that's where the value of partnerships, both internally with other marketers, with other teams, but also externally can really, that's how you grow at scale, simply put. Yeah. I lo love that. And I think this is a, a good place to start to bring it in for a landing here. Um, two questions to, to end the thing related to LinkedIn. Um, one, you've got some, some fun little stuff in your uh, profile. Uh, one uh, is, a, is a link that goes out to a little questionnaire to fill out. And I'm, I'm quite uh, curious at one of the questions and what you're learning from it. Uh, you have a question that says, uh, I want to connect about professional development with revenue leaders to see how leaders are investing in themselves and their teams. Are you learning anything interesting about how revenue leaders and their teams are investing in themselves? Yeah, so I'm going to take this from really the angle of like, where's the greatest skill gap that we're, that we're hearing about? Um, and then how leaders are trying to invest in their teams and kind of in themselves to help fill that, that gap. 
if you follow Matt Green, he's talked a lot about this recently, but if you think about the past five years for a career professional in sales, you know, somebody graduated like 2018, 2019, they were probably an SDR. They then got promoted to an AE and then three months later, COVID hit. And then they have only had a world of remote sales until like six, seven months ago. And now what we're seeing is like, we're doing a lot more in person. Sellers are being encouraged to go back in person. And when people have done surveys and we've, we talked with a lot of our CROs about like, okay, well, people are not going back in person. They're really hesitant to do it. Why is it? And it's because again, if you think about it, they've literally never had to do it. Like it just, it's not been a skill that they've had to learn. They're used to the 30 minute zoom meeting and relationships and sales have become incredibly transactional because we have 30 minutes and then I'm done and I move on to my next meeting. And again, I don't have to build that deep of a relationship because you come inbound. I have my two calls with you to ban you to do the discovery. And then I pass you off to our CST to then like manage you forever. So from that perspective, the greatest gap that we're seeing right now is like the actual ability to go and build relationships and actually do that in person. Because again, if you're used to a 30 minute Zoom call and you have to go to a three hour happy hour and like make small talk, how do you do that? Yeah, People don't know. So what we're seeing a lot of leaders doing is investing the time in themselves and with their team to actually go out. And we're seeing a lot of great leaders lead from the front and show Hey, here's how you do this. And again, they go with a team and they're kind of like, for lack of a word, like doing a happy hour together with all the potential customers. And like the next day having a meeting and a post-mortem and saying like, what did you do well? What, like, what didn't you do well? How can you do better next time? So like, those are the leaders that we're seeing are really doing a great job to, for lack of a word, like have empathy for something that you would assume, oh, if you're a seller, like you're going to be great at relationships. But again, like practically haven't had to be for the past couple of years. And now we need to be again. So that's, I think, where people are really investing their time and their dollars into upping their team's abilities. That is not the answer I expected. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> that's crazy, but it makes total sense. Yeah. The, the, the need to coach to build relationships or... I made a reference a while back to like how do we coach to curiosity and I think that's kind of where we're at now is like how do we you know coach people to be more curious to be able to have those conversations to build their relationship and to understand the nature of relationships and so that's kind of <laughs> I feel like that's been the theme of this whole podcast is, is value to build relationships so there we go all right let's talk about the uh, the golden elephant in the room and we're going to wrap it up with the, uh, the fun, a fun fact here. We normally wrap with a fun question, but we're going to go a little different route of fun to end this show. Um, there's a, a little nugget in your bio, much like our friend Justin Keller, that mentions something about a King's Kaleidoscope. Tell us about the King's Kaleidoscope. I couldn't be more happy they asked. So... Uh, <laughs> King's Kaleidoscope is an internationally renowned Christian alternative rock band that I deeply, deeply love. Um, okay. So if, if, you, uh, if you're in the podcast world, uh, there was a podcast that was like eight episodes. It was called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Mars Hill was this big, massive church. King's Kaleidoscope was the main band for Mars Hill. 
that then when things went really south of Mars Hill, they went on it on their own and have built an incredible band. So from that perspective, I'm like a deep, deep fan. Um, and the, the reference and the illusion that I, I make in the uh, bio is when I was in college, a friend and I, um, we lived in Jackson, Mississippi, and we said, hey, what if we like drove to LA and back and like over spring break? So we drove to LA and back. Um, and while we were on the road, uh, my, my friend recognized, oh, King's Kaleidoscope, Mason's favorite band, is playing at a missions conference at uh, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And I just happened to bring my saxophone with me because I have this skill that's only valuable if I have a saxophone. So he surprised me. <laughs> and we went. And uh, I got to hear King's Kaleidoscope live and in person for the first time. And then I went up after. And I was, like, super nervous about it. And I was like, hey, I love your music. Could I play? Like, it's been a dream of mine to play with you. Could I play with you guys? And they're like, you any good? And I was like, yeah, I think I'm, I'm pretty decent. So they ended up letting me come to a sound check. I played a single song. They mic'd me up. And then after, no they were like, you're actually, like, pretty good. So I hung out with them for an hour. I got all their phone numbers and, like, ended up the next month seeing them in Atlanta. And uh, I met Lecrae and Propaganda backstage at that concert. And I started to have conversations around going on a European tour with them. And they were like, we're on tour right now. Like, we're going to have to, like, put this on pause. But, like, just keep texting us. Like, we'll get back to you when we're, like, done with this tour. Uh, I ended up letting it go because my church asked me to be a volunteer VBS director. So instead of going on a European tour with an international renowned band, I uh, choices led VBS. Went to vacation Bible Mason, school. Mason, you are full of surprises. Yeah, seriously, I feel like we should have started the show off with this and <laughs> talked about this a little bit. This is amazing. Well, it, we'll I, just have a V2. So t- tell us why King's Kaleidoscope is in your bio. What happens? Um, I mean, if you actually send me the message, King's Kaleidoscope, I put this there as a test to see if anybody will mention it. It's been there for three months. You're the first person to mention it. I'll send you a saxophone solo. God, I love that. That's so good. I'm just going to send it to you just so I can get a solo. But Well, um, well wait, wait. I think this counts. <laughs> yeah, this this actually can count. King's Kaleidoscope. I, let me ask you this. Have, I know you've listened to the podcast. Have you heard the intro music? I have heard the intro music. Okay, Ooh, first thing, what do you think about the intro there. music? What do, you think, what do you think about it? You know, it's pretty all right. Oh, wow. I think... <laughs> I think I think there could be a different instrument used. Okay, okay, let's go. Let's see. Show what us you what got. you got. I'm going to face it this way. You're welcome. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was the best thing to ever happen on this podcast, hands down. I've, I've got no, doubt. no way to... Got no way to top that. I don't. I think we should just wrap the podcast in its entirety, <laughs> right there. No, this is only episode we, we can only go 10. down from here. <laughs> That's amazing, amazing. Thank you so much for hanging out Thanks with us so. today. Thank you for that wonderful friends with benefits sax solo. Could not imagine a better way to end this. You're incredible. <laughs> Such so a great. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you next time, friends. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scrappy ABM. 
If you enjoyed this week's episode, go ahead and give us a follow so that you don't miss a single episode. We drop every single Monday so that you can start your week off right. And if you're looking for additional great content just like this, go check out ScrappyABM.com. We're building a library of frameworks, guides, templates, processes, and tools so you have everything that you need to build a low-budget, high-impact Scrappy program. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of Scrappy ABM. This has been your host, Mason Cosby, and we look forward to seeing you in the next one.